The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The big surprise for Moscow in all this is that Moscow propaganda for in recent years has been alleging that Europe the West are in decline, that America is uh, polarized, uh, Europe is divided, and therefore they're weak. The Kremlin is pretending that the correlation of forces, as they call it, is moving in this direction. The opposite is true. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 14th, 2022. There's a lot going on in Russia's near abroad, the countries on the periphery of the Russian Federation. We got a war brewing in Ukraine with talks in Geneva between Russia and the West seeming to fail this week. We also had Russian troops in Kazakhstan there at the invitation of the autocratic Kazakh government in response to protests over fuel prices. We thought it was time to check in and we got a heck of a panel before a live audience to do so. Alina Polyakova of the Center for European Policy Analysis, Alex Vindman, the Pritzker Military Fellow at Lawfare, Ambassador William Courtney, who served as ambassador to Kazakhstan, and Dmitry Alperovich, the founder of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. We talked about what's going on in Kazakhstan. We talked about the failure of the diplomatic process in Geneva. We talked about the war that seems to be coming in Ukraine. And we took questions from a live audience It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 14th, Trouble in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Alina, get us started here. In the last uh, few weeks, we have had two crises break out in countries that used to be ruled from Moscow. Number one, give us a a brief overview of, of the problems in the near abroad. And number two, Give us a sense of to what extent they're connected and to what extent they're independent of one another. All right. Thanks, Ben, for that very easy opening uh, question. But uh, sure, why not? Okay, Uh, elevator version here, (laughs) because I'm sure we'll get into some of the details. Number one crisis is, of course, the ongoing Russian military buildup on the border with Ukraine, which started last fall and has remained more or less stable, though some there's some suggestion now from that from new intelligence information, satellite imagery and things of that nature that is actually growing and growing as the Russians continue to reposition forces and weapons and artillery and things of that nature. Uh, so this buildup has prompted now a week, ongoing week this week of a sort of 
a triathlon of diplomacy that the U.S. has engaged in uh, to try to get the Russians back to the diplomatic table. And this is really prompted not just by the military buildup, but also by this very bizarre thing that the Russian government did, which was to publish publicly, which is a very unusual step in the diplomatic world, if you're, inter- if you're actually interested in diplomacy and negotiations, uh, they published these two so-called treaties uh, that outline uh, quite uh, extremist demands uh, from the Russian Federation for NATO and separate but related set uh, for the United States. So th- these things include uh, demands, for example, uh, that the U.S. basically commit to a permanent non-alignment for Ukraine, meaning say very clearly in written form that Ukraine will never join NATO as well as Georgia, uh, includes things like basically uh, rewinding and reversing NATO's engagement in its eastern flank members to sometime in 1997, um, and all kinds of other provisions that are basically non-starters. So that has prompted the United States to try to take the threat of Russian invasion very seriously. And very quickly, what's happened this week so far, we've had a U.S.-Russia bilateral meeting on Monday to kick this off. Then we had uh, meetings at the NATO-Russia Council, the first meetings, I believe, in over two years now. And then as we speak, or I guess they're already wrapped up, uh, meetings in the context of the OSCE in Europe. So far, uh, no breakthroughs, and the Russians are signaling they've been very disappointed. At the same time, uh, crisis number two is Kazakhstan, uh, where we saw uh, the outbreak of protests uh, that turned violent. Um, it, honestly, it's been difficult to really assess what happened in the last several weeks because the internet was basically uh, shut off during this time. Uh, but long story short there, I know we have Ambassador Courtney here who's been following this closely. The short of it is that Takayev, the president of Kazakhstan, uh, reaches out to Russia, to Mr. Putin, to ask for assistance, uh, so-called peacekeeping forces, uh, which the Russia, the Russians send as spetsnaz, uh, about 2,500 of them, to quell the protests, the violence, which has resulted now in dozens of deaths, supposedly, on both sides. These are uh, the Kazakhstan's official figures. We don't have an independent verification, as far as I've seen, of the actual number of fatalities. Uh, and now the Kazakh government said that things have stabilized, uh, with many thanks to Mr. Putin, um, whose forces will leave Kazakhstan in the coming weeks. Uh, of course, the United States has said, well, uh, I believe it was Tony Blinken who said, well, uh, once the Russians are there, we know it's hard for them, it's hard to get them to leave. So that is very much a developing situation. Um, at the same time, the first and only leader of Kazakhstan before, uh, Takayev uh, Nazarbayev, was basically pushed out of his uh, remaining seat in the Security Council. Uh, which was, I think, widely seen as Takayev really instating himself as the as the leader, not a puppet in Nazarbayev. So those are some of the dynamics in Kazakhstan. But clearly, uh, Russia is much more focused and engaged in Ukraine. I think they have won a victory in their engagement in Kazakhstan, but we can get into all of that. All right. Thank you. That was an admirably thorough and brief overview. Uh, Ambassador Courtney, let's go into the Kazakhstan situation a little bit. You served as ambassador there. What are these protests about? And this sort of, from a Western perspective, seemed to come out of nowhere. Uh, To what extent has this been 
a festering problem that we've ignored? And to what extent does it really come out of nowhere? Well, you're right, Ben, that it's a festering problem. It's been smoldering for a long time. And Alina is right that this is a murky situation still. So it's a bit difficult to tell for sure how these things are going to develop. But in a nutshell, totally unrelated to the Russia-Ukraine crisis or to the Belarus crisis, as near as we can tell, protests uh, began against the increase in liquefied petroleum gas, which a number of people use for heating and for their automobiles, uh, in a place called Janaz in the western Kazakhstan, which is an oil worker's town, uh, but uniquely interesting because even though the oil wealth is concentrated in western Kazakhstan, the oil workers don't really earn a lot of money themselves. They had a protest a decade ago, a labor protest, and the authorities shot uh, perhaps a couple dozen of them. Uh, and that became a very sensitive point. Well, this is where the protest started this time. But with lightning speed, the protests spread all across uh, the country because this has been a festering situation. There are a couple aspects of it. Uh, one is uh, the Nazarbayev family uh, has stupendous wealth, and so much of it has been ostentatious. The second, the people are tiring of uh, autocracy and the continued uh, uh, tightening of political uh, space. Uh, third, two years ago, uh, President Nazarbayev uh, engineered a transition in which the capital city was named after himself, and uh, President, uh, uh, the now President Takayev was elevated to the presidency. Now, Takayev uh, was a career diplomat, very thoughtful person, but he does not have uh, an independent power base in Kazakhstan. He's not a real politico. Uh, so it's hard to tell exactly what political forces are operating right now. I don't think that Putin would have sent in uh, troops unless Nazarbayev and Takayev would have agreed to this. But not many troops were sent in, and they were stationed at guarding facilities. Uh, the Russians did not want, and certainly the Kazakhs did not want, Russian troops to be shooting Kazakhs. That would have been extremely unpopular in Kazakhstan, as it was. Takayev's calling in the Russians may have blighted his copybook in Kazakhstan because of the northern oblasts in Kazakhstan, which have a higher percentage of uh, Russian ethnic Russians. Uh, a number of ultranationalists in Russia would like to pull those back, or sorry, pull those into Russia, annex them. And so Kazakhs are pretty sensitive uh, to that sort of thing. Uh, so the Russians may be pulling out in part because I think that if they stay, they could end up alienating Kazakhs uh, to a greater extent, and they've already had a surfeit of alienation uh, in Ukraine. So right now, uh, there's power elite juggling, juggling. I would say the only two aspects that are for sure now is that the Nazarbayev family uh, is probably going to be in uh, great difficulty. Uh, they may not stay around uh, much in Kazakhstan. Nazarbayev himself, though, is still popular among a lot of uh, people, particularly older people, particularly uh, rural people. Uh, so I would uh, not think that Nazarbayev is going to go off to the Gulf like probably some of his family. The second aspect, the cult of personality around Nazarbayev, that's probably going to come to an end now. That's gone too far. Uh, and that includes uh, not only him personally, but includes the massive amount of resources that have been diverted uh, to build this uh, Dubai-like ostentatious uh, Astana capital, now called Nur Sultan. 
So I, I think what we're going to see in Kazakhstan is a little bit more an open process, but still authoritarian for the time being anyway. We're going to see other regions of Kazakhstan seek and probably obtain greater resources relative to Astana. And we're going to see the Nazarbayev family not only out of the country, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a new government try to claw back some of the uh, ill-gotten gains from family members. And just before we move on quickly, should we understand the Russian presence as a peacekeeping mission uh, requested by the Kazakh government, or should we understand it as something else? There were reports, particularly in Western Kazakhstan, that some of the security forces went over to the side of the protesters. I think one reason Takayev called them in, and again, I think Nazarbayev probably agreed on this, uh, was to stiffen the spine of Kazakh security forces. And indeed, it did seem to do that, and the security forces then uh, cracked down to a greater extent. All right, Dmitry, while all this was going on, the U.S., the Russians uh, were meeting in Geneva to decide the fate of the Ukrainians, which had a kind of uh, weird great game quality to it. Uh, Alina described this as producing no breakthroughs and frustrating the Russians. How should we understand what's going on in, in Geneva? I think it's pretty clear that the Russians did not come to Geneva or to Belgium. They had follow-up talks with NATO and uh, OSCC this week with any intention to negotiate. At best, it appears that they came to listen to what the U.S. side uh, was prepared to offer. And in their view, it was insufficient. Uh, we heard from uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Rapkov today, who was the lead negotiator uh, sitting across from Wendy Sherman in Geneva, who basically said that uh, Washington and its NATO allies uh, have not provided any proposals that satisfy Russia's concerns. And most importantly, he said that he doesn't see a need for further talks. So um, this situation leaves us with a very bleak scenario, one that I was um, sort of forecasting back in mid-December when I posted a long thread on Twitter that I thought that Russian invasion of Ukraine was very likely. Uh, I'm now raising that uh, likelihood to extremely likely in the coming weeks as they build up more forces to actually prepare to carry out an invasion. But if they're pulling out diplomatically, um, if they're saying there's no need to, to have more talks, it's pretty clear that there are two options that are remaining is either to do nothing, which is inconceivable given all the rhetorical red lines that they've drawn in recent months, or to actually move forward with a military solution. Well, there's one other possibility, which is to convince everybody of what you just said and thereby induce a certain amount of panic uh, in the hope of generating themselves a better diplomatic offer. Do you see no possibility that this is a, a diplomatic bluff? I don't. I think uh, you could make the case that what happened this week was that diplomatic bluff. And if it was a bluff, it was called. And uh, now they're backing themselves into a corner of, of having to act. I, I just don't see how once you've said that there, there's no need for more diplomatic talks, unless the United States all of a sudden changes its uh, very strong position that we will not discuss any foreclosing of NATO's open door policy, i.e. letting NATO expand in the future, potentially to include Ukraine and Georgia and 
maybe even other Soviet republics, unless the United States changes its policy on that, which I don't see being in the cards, um, even just politically for President Biden, I don't see how the Russians uh, come back to the talks. All right, Alex, do you see this situation quite as bleakly as uh, your co-panelists do, or is there room to be optimistic about the diplomatic process in Geneva? I think earlier this week, I was kind of put on the spot and asked a score on a scale of one to 10, where I think the likelihood was, was going to fall. And I put it at an eight. So really kind of close to all but certain. And um, it seemed to me that this this last week in particular, I'm not sure what the objectives were from the, the U.S. side, from the Russian side. It was clearly to extract something close to a maximalist concession. From the U.S. side, it, it's less clear because we came prepared to talk about something that the Russians were, frankly, not all that interested in talking about. And these are things that were not going to de-escalate the situation. So uh, in the meantime, we've had a the continued buildup of forces along Ukraine's border, a significant change to historical patterns where you now have the Eastern military district deploying. Imagine a continent away, you know, 11 time zones at its furthest forces being brought in from that region. Now, they've done some of this before to kind of just t- uh, test this ability to flex forces, but nothing on this scale. Simultaneously with that, they're, they're doing what uh, in the military, what we would c- call pre-rehearsal or pre-execution exercises. So all the live fires that are occurring on the the border, all the logistics are falling into place. And I I would say that the likelihood of action is weeks away, weeks, uh, not like 10 weeks at the top end, you know, somewhere in the six week uh, ballpark. I still think it's likely to occur in late February, maybe after the the Olympics with with regards to China. I think the last time the uh, Chinese didn't appreciate uh, 2008 and the invasion of Georgia occurring while they were trying to highlight China's awesomeness. So I think that's that's really what the, the what we're looking at. And my biggest concern really is that the US has not really done anything near enough to deter this massive offensive, what I've described as the largest offensive in Europe since World War II from unfolding. Uh, they went all in on a diplomatic track, but didn't do anything on what I think was also necessary, a, a, a hard power, pressure track. They didn't talk about reassurance through additional forces shifting to Europe. They didn't talk about arming the Ukrainians. They only talked about it as a contingency in case the Russians escalate. It's not clear if they've made that much progress on the uh, the sanctions, the nuclear option with regards to sanctions that's missing. I think there are other aspects that should be brought to bear. Uh, we, there's rumblings from uh, Finland and Sweden about potentially joining NATO. Those should be those should be magnified to indicate that Russia's actions are precipitating these kinds of uh, these kinds of changes. And really, I think we're at the point where we've mismanaged this to a certain extent uh, so poorly that we really probably almost need to double down on the pressure track. We had we had more flexibility weeks and months ago than we do now. And I think one thing that might be able to change the Russian calculus. Uh, is not U.S. troops in in uh, Western Ukraine, but maybe NATO troops in Western Ukraine. We already have Lithuania and Estonia, and then most recently Latvia weighing in, saying that they're prepared to p- provide support to Ukraine. I think Poland is probably not too far behind. Romania is not too far behind, and positioning advisors and um, you know some sort of troop presence in Western Ukraine to indicate some resolve. 
would not be as as uh, escalatory as U.S. troops, but it would send a message that we're we're there and um, we have interest in to take to take our side of the equation pretty seriously. But I don't know if any of that's going to work at this point. We've gone too far down this this road, and it seems to be that we're almost certainly headed for a major major uh, military offensive. Just to quickly respond to Alex and and what Dimitri laid out on the table about. You know, the Russians have kind of walked themselves into a bit of a corner because now they need a win. And how are they going to walk back from this so-called position of strength when they've said, here are demands, and they said that very publicly. So how are they going to take home a win based on getting absolutely nothing in terms of their demands from these uh, talks? Well, there was an interesting statement I'll just mention um, at the end of the first meetings, uh, the so-called strategic stability talks between uh, Russia and the United States from Deputy Secretary Sherman, who has led uh, the U.S. delegation here. Um, and I will read this out very quickly because I thought this was something that was a bit lost. But in her press readout, uh, what she said was that the United States would be open to setting reciprocal limits on the size and scope of military exercises, which, okay, that may sound like a bunch of ambiguous googly goop, but I, I think we have to understand that the way U.S. presence manifests itself in the eastern flank and especially in the Baltic region is through U.S. participation in military exercises. And so if we start putting that on the table, you know, we're going to scale that back. That is de facto saying the United States is going to reduce its presence in the eastern flank. At least that's how it could be read. OK, and there was no clarification on that. In other statements, this hasn't come up. If anything, they've talked about adding transparency to mutual military exercises, adding better information sharing. But this was in the in the statement by uh, the deputy secretary. And I think if that is what happens, you know, that could be very much uh, a win for the Russians because they're not going to follow the same. I mean, they'll agree to whatever, but they're still going to do whatever they want. At the end of the day, the Russians don't really care about these international laws and agreements. One last comment on what Alex said, though. Uh, you know, I actually think the administration does deserve some credit here. I, I also don't think it was useful to lay out the diplomacy as one track, as I think President Biden said after his call with Putin. You know, you have two paths here, Russia. You have the diplomatic path or you have the deterrence path. But it's not either or. Deterrence is how you get diplomacy. And so the fact that the administration has kind of uh, disintegrated and separated these tracks was a bit odd. And, of course, the fact that we've said only if you invade. But what does invasion really mean? We haven't defined what that means. You know, the, we know in the past the Russians don't just send in you know, the army. They do all kinds of other things. They do, as, as Dimitri knows very well, cyber attacks. They do disinformation. They send in the paramilitary groups and the little green men. So if they do that in southeastern Ukraine, are we, is that an invasion? We've never answered that question since you know, 2014, basically. But I will say that I think on the diplomatic track, I think the administration has done absolutely everything they can to have a clear united front from NATO. And it was a united front, uh, a united front from Europe, which is no easy task given some European uh, interest in Russian energy. And so I think the Russians were surprised to find this kind of united front presented to them in the talks this week. And of course, they went and went disappointed because they were expecting something else. And what they got was 
a big punch in the face. All right. So we have from Alex the sense of U.S. policy as uh, woefully inadequate to the situation. And from Alina, a, a, a somewhat brighter sense of U.S. policy as having created a uh, a unified coalition. Ambassador Courtney, where do you fall here? What has has the Biden administration handled this effectively or badly, or do we just not know yet? By and large, the Biden administration has handled itself quite well. The uh, consultations with Europe have been intensive. Uh, they've dealt with uh, you know, sanctions, military act- activities. Uh, there's bipartisan support in Congress, let's say, with regard to uh, pretty much everything the administration has done. Uh, so that's been pretty effective. The problem is that Europeans are still not settled on what sanctions. And so there's uh, some uncertainty there. The big surprise for Moscow in all this is that Moscow propaganda for in recent years has been alleging that Europe, the West are in decline, that America is uh, polarized, uh, Europe is divided, and therefore they're weak. The Kremlin is pretending that the correlation of forces, as they call it, is moving in this direction. The opposite is true. There's a lot of stagnation uh, in Russia, both economic and uh, political stagnation. And the West is you know, rebounding from the COVID crisis uh, reasonably well. It's important to understand that uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman's proposals, essentially two proposals, one is on intermediate range nuclear forces and the other is on uh, transparency and limits on military exercises. Both of those go to agreements that Moscow and Washington have negotiated for many years. So the INF Treaty, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty from 1987, the Russians violated that, so the U.S. pulled out. Essentially what the U.S. is offering is to go back into some kind of agreement like that. With regard to military exercises, the Vienna uh, concluding document from 2011 updated deals with uh, transparency measures, uh, notifications for military exercises. So what Wendy Sherman is proposing is really the kind of diplomacy that's been going on for a long time. It's not some new conceptual shock uh, to the Kremlin because they've agreed with a lot of that uh, in past uh, agreements. You know, if I can just jump in, the reason why I was so pessimistic uh, a month ago and remain so is that I think that there is very little that the U.S. administration could have done in the last uh, week or in the last month uh, to forestall this crisis. The time to act would have been six months ago when I think you could have de-escalated the situation perhaps back at the Geneva summit uh, between President Biden and President Putin in June, um, where you could have come to some sort of agreement on Minsk II, which is a set of agreements that are not so favorable to Ukraine, but which Ukraine under pressure sign on to about resolution to this um, conflict in Donbass and giving some autonomy to the, to the territories where you have a lot of Russian speaking population that Putin is claiming to be protecting. You know, if you could have uh, done a deal with Putin back then on some of those issues, uh, you might have uh, de-escalated the situation. But I think once he pulled the trigger on the mobilization, once he deployed this unprecedented number of forces and logistics and uh, made a sort of mental commitment to resolve the broader problem, uh, which in his mind now goes well beyond Donbass and resolving that, but uh, the NATO expansion issues, missiles that he keeps talking about, um, the concern about four to five minute flight time to Moscow. I think he, once he made that decision that he was going to go for the whole enchilada, 
Um, there's very little that the U.S. administration could do to forestall it, short of um, uh, basically conceding on everything. Alex? What I think you see playing out in this discussion is this kind of tension between whether Putin banks some of the gains he has or some of the offers that have been made, or does he actually achieve the fundamental aims that this whole operation was designed for? On the banking side of the equation, he's been at the top of the agenda for the world, for the United States, for Europe, for, for the past several weeks. He's had a couple of summits, and he could really walk away with fairly significant gains with almost no cost, only the cost of internal deployments of, of troops. But in, the re- in reality, he doesn't actually advance his uh, a fundamental objective, which is realizing a failed state in Ukraine, realizing the prospects of Ukraine weakened and folded back into uh, the Russian sphere of influence. The only thing that does that is a, a military offensive at this point. He was willing to potentially negotiate and uh, absorb a positive signal on the fact that the U.S. and Europe were willing to to give the sense that Ukraine was clearly outside of U.S. and European interests. He, would, he, he was looking for that in the form of uh, guarantees. But minus that, absent something, that kind of signaling, and the a fact that he could actually continue his enterprise over the course of a longer period of time, he didn't have to exercise this military operation now, He's gotten a clear signal from the West that he could do this at a more leisurely pace. The only thing that he could potentially do is this this large scale operation. With regards to diplomacy, it's almost like two different, different, uh, completely different conversations going on. We're talking about you know some on the margins, some gives on European security, and he's looking at maximalist guarantees on rewriting the, the European security architecture. He's looking for a free hand in Ukraine. So there is really nothing that's been accomplished. I guess I'm more focused on outcomes than process. Yes, we did a good job, much better than we did with regards to, say, the the AUKUS issue about submarines to New Zealand to Australia. We were better coordinated there. We were better coordinated than we were with regards to Afghanistan. But this is a process issue. For outcomes, we've actually not done anything that fundamentally deters Russian action, and that's why I'm pretty critical about of this. I'm now I'm frankly, openly critical of this administration, it's because I really think there's a an enormous urgency to do more to avoid a massive, massive confrontation in Europe that we cannot easily uh, avo- uh, extract ourselves from or avoid being involved in. When you're talking about the scale of what's likely to unfold with tens of thousands of refugees flowing in, massive catastrophic damage to to ukraine morale targets being hit it's this idea of crushing the will of the ukrainians to resist and destroying like the maidan or something like that when you're talking about those kinds of scales and then our eastern allies being involved it's hard to imagine that the u.s is just going to be able to stick stay completely clean and out of it so that's why i think there needed to be more done weeks and months ago to avoid it now the options are limited now it seems to me that we're really on this road to, to war and we have to take a much more, more aggressive and assertive pressure track, something that's languished, something that's been underdeveloped for the past several weeks and months. And we need to do a lot more on, on this particular track to avoid a catastrophic outcome. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I just think we need to be honest here. It's not about weeks and months, it's years. You know, there's, I don't think there's very much this administration in its first year could have truly done to uh, you know, arm Ukraine. They did release funding. They did provide more equipment. Yes, could we have done more? Yes. But of course, there were other priorities. I mean, needless to mention COVID and everything else that's been happening inside our country and Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So since 2014, our policy has underestimated the threat because the time to arm Ukraine at a more significant level was starting in 2014 until now. And if the Ukrainians had uh, equipment at the level of, you know, Western military equipment, uh, this would not be happening right now. It just really wouldn't. And the biggest weaknesses the Ukrainians have is in the air domain and in the maritime domain. So they have a very strong land force now. Um, I believe the Ukrainian military capability is around 250,000 that can be mobilized. That's significant. I mean, that is very significant. But if this becomes uh, an aggressive air campaign by the Russian side, it's over because they don't have those capabilities. So is, this has been a failure on multiple administrations, you know, from the Obama administration onward. So I think it's a little unfair to say, well, this administration is the one that screwed it up because they didn't hear a pretty problematic situation. Now, I think there's a bigger geopolitical point here, if I may, just to zoom out a little bit from the details of this environment. Um, that we're talking about um, in Ukraine and on the border. Because I think the question we have to ask ourselves is why does Putin feel like this is a moment uh, of opportunity for him? And I think that's very clear. You know, um, this is where I think he has read uh, the situation correctly, that this administration had no interest in dealing with Russia. When we first used the term stable and reliable, alarm bells went off in my head because from the Russian side, that was heard as, huh, you want to park us, so we'll, we'll show you. You don't park us, right? And so clearly what they're setting up is a choice for the United States. And you either choose the long-term threat of China, which is your real concern, as you've said multiple times, or you invest your resources in Europe again and in Ukraine. And they're betting that the U.S. will not choose Ukraine. They're betting the U.S. will choose China. And I think, unfortunately, they're probably correct based on Everything we've heard from the administration, this is what they want to focus on, the Indo-Pacific. And that means resources are scarce. So the Russians have now forced us to fight a two-way front, which the U.S. cannot do, just for the capabilities and capacities, and we will not do. And this is why they think they can get some concessions that would have never been on the table before um, this particular moment. And I think it's up to us now to decide 
are we really going to change our national security and foreign policy objectives from what they were, which is a focus on China, to refocus on Europe, because we cannot do both. And at the end of the day, I don't have the answer to that. So far, we haven't heard that kind of strategic refocus messaging, uh, but this is exactly why the Russians are doing what they're doing now. Ambassador Courtney? Yes, let me offer a slightly different take on why uh, it's now. And you remember uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman said that uh, this has been invented out of the whole cloth. Well, that's true which also kind of reminds you of the Cuba Missile Crisis and the SS-20 crisis, uh, both crises invented by the Kremlin out of the whole cloth. From the Kremlin's perspective, in 2014, they were concerned that Europe uh, was going to suck in Ukraine, that Ukraine was going to go westward. Since 2020, you know, they have seen civil society in Belarus take much more interest in moving toward Ukraine. And I think the Kremlin's kind of lost confidence in the Lukashenko leadership and perhaps his whole power structure. So from the perspective of the Kremlin, Russia runs a risk that the other two East Slavic civilizations, Belarus and Ukraine, may be going west. And now is maybe, from their perspective, the only time, you know, the only last chance, if you will, to, to stop this. Uh, because the Kremlin has convinced itself that the West is in decline, because it's worried about Belarus and Ukraine going West, that may have had something to do with why uh, the Kremlin chose the, this time. Uh, one other point on Cuba Missile Crisis and SS-20. In both cases, uh, the Soviet, conservative Soviet leaders uh, went out on a limb, and in both cases, they had to crawl back. Cuba Missile Crisis was particularly humiliating for Khrushchev, uh, that was one of the reasons why he was ousted two years later. In the early 1980s, the uh, hidebound Brezhnev-era leadership secretly deployed SS-20s, used active measures to try to stop the West, NATO, from deploying counter-missiles. Uh, uh, they failed. And two years later, that conservative leadership was pretty much out of power as Gorbachev came to power. I think Putin has taken a chance, uh, too much of a chance, too much of a risk, if you will, Backing off will be a bit humiliating, won't be easy. But if he goes into Ukraine, uh, be devastating impact on the economy, particularly the financial side, and Russia risks becoming a pariah in the West. All right. Before we go to audience questions, I want to ask you each, starting with Dimitri, today is day zero. Everything that's happened before today, we can't do anything about. Your goal is to prevent a devastating conflict in Ukraine, what levers are at your disposal? What do you do? Well, I reject the premise of the question because I think it's an impossible goal that you just set because I, I don't think that it is possible to avoid the conflict. I don't think that we have much leverage over the Russians at this point. Um, the sanctions that are on the table right now that have been publicized in the press are not going to do anything to change this calculus. Um, they'll be painful, but they're not devastating. They're not nuclear options. Even the sanctions on the SWIFT transactions pulling Russian banks out of SWIFT is not going to change anything because they'll just move on to their own uh, SPFB system, which they've built since 2014. That is a SWIFT equivalent. They'll provide the terminals to other banks. In fact, some banks in Germany and a few other places already use it. And anyone that wants to do business with Russia, either pay um, Russian employees of international companies or buy oil and gas from Russia or selling goods and services is going to use that system. So you, you're just going to 
give them a workaround um, swift. Um, the sanctions that would really hurt them on the oil and gas industry, on Rosneft and Gazprom, I don't think are on the table, given that Europe could literally freeze to death um, because it's so reliant on Russian gas. And even in the United States, uh, we're currently importing Russian crude oil um, and with inflation spiking to 7%, the last thing I think the Biden administration wants to do is make that inflation number go even higher in a midterm election year. So I, I don't think that there is a way to deter Putin. You know, at a tactical level, one thing I would be looking at, to be honest with you, that, that I haven't seen discussed much, is um, the idea of how do we make sure that if he does go in, you don't create uh, a 500 kilometer line of engagement for the Ukrainians having to defend the eastern part of the country against invasion, the southern part against the invasion from Crimea, and at the same time have to worry about Belarus um, and, and a Western flank coming from there. That would just be completely unsustainable to them. Not, not that I think that they, they would be able to, to withstand a Russian invasion anyway, but you know I would be thinking about the types of pressure we can apply on Lukashenko right now to give them uh, a clear signal that if you join Putin in this adventure, Maybe there's a limited amount of things we can do to Russia, but there's a tremendous amount of things we can do to you to hurt you if you decide to participate in this conflict and give Russia a way to go in through the through the Belarus front. So I think we can do that. Um, that I don't know that it would forestall an invasion, but make things a little bit more difficult for the Russians tactically because they would be going through the areas that are much more well defended by the Ukrainians. But I think that any campaign would start off with a long range um fires exercise against all of the Ukrainian defense positions, self-propelled artillery, long-range artillery, missiles, rockets, air campaign that would just devastate uh, Ukrainian defense units long before a, a single Russian soldier crosses the border. Alex, is the moment for deterrent past or is Dmitry being too doom and gloom? I think we, are, we have a small window of limited probability success. So I, I think there's still maybe a couple weeks, but I'm not, I think that uh, the chances of success are probably still limited. And the reason is that I uh, assess Putin's um, actions on the base of need and probability. I think Ambassador Courtney uh, laid out the need. The window for action is now. It's only going to get harder. This is uh, the, the scheme that Ukraine was going to be a failed state has been proven to be false. And the opportunity is everything from the U.S. De desire to be uh, to orient towards Asia, the internal instabilities and partisanship in the United States. I've actually described January 6th of 2021. Uh, you know, if that didn't happen, that wouldn't show the same kind of vulnerability in the, in the United States, the seams between us and the Europeans. Some of that's actually been proven to, uh, false based on the uh, diplomacy that's unfolded over the, the previous uh, weeks and months. But. Uh, we have not done enough to close this idea of the opportunity exists. And we could do that some on the margins. We could do that with regards to uh, lethal assistance. We could still provide capabilities that the, the uh, Ukrainians are more than capable of fielding. They wouldn't be able to in integrate them into a kind of a comprehensive strategic layer defense, but they could still use surface to air uh, manpads, surface to air uh, capabilities. Uh, we could probably arm them with coastal defense capabilities that it really doesn't take. I mean, only one of them needs to be effective against a, uh, a amphibious assault ship to really inflict some serious damage. We could do the same thing with regards to capabilities that they have employed with javelins. These on, the, on their uh, own won't be effective, but in 
in partnership with regards to sanctions that could be useful. I think we should also, just to reiterate my my thought on legislating sanctions, they snap into effect immediately as soon as Russia escalates. That's always a good signal is that, you know, our hands are tired. There's no flexibility uh, if they're legislated. Uh, discussions with Finland and Sweden about joining NATO should be part of the uh, the option set and really starting to publicly discuss the uh, uh, NATO putting in troops, not U.S. troops, but NATO putting in troops. These altogether might uh, add enough weight to deter Russian aggression. Part of it is showing resolve that the U.S. is not going to just bend over uh, backwards to give the uh, Russians uh, free hand in, in Ukraine. Uh, that all would would feed into Putin's calculus. Uh, I guess there is, uh, you know, one diplomatic solution that I do see that I don't think is at all realistic. But if the U.S. were to completely cave to Russian demands on NATO expansion and NATO uh, weapons sales and support for Ukraine, uh, you could potentially get a diplomatic solution. But I just don't see that in the cards politically for Biden or just uh, realistically uh, our allies accepting that. Ambassador Courtney? Uh, agree with uh, Alex. Uh providing stingers, uh, shore-based harpoons uh, to help protect Odessa, for example, uh, would be very helpful. It's something that we ought to be doing right now before our conflict to help deter our conflict uh, and enable the uh, Ukrainians to have a little bit of time to train and practice uh, with those systems. Uh, In the Yom Kippur War in 1973, when the fighting started, things looked worse for Israel than we expected. We flew over weapons out of our own stocks to Israel to help them. We could do something like that to help Ukraine. If uh, Russian warships sought to blockade Odessa, the main port, we could fly B-1s out of Diego Garcia with anti-ship missiles and destroy those uh, vessels. We could blockade any Russian ships coming out of the Black Sea. So there are a number of options uh, for us in the military area. Alina, what would you do uh, what would you tell uh, the president to do if he called you up for advice about what to do to head this situation off? You know, I think, to be honest, everything that, you know, our, my colleagues here have said uh, are real options. I just don't think we are prepared to take them. There is a lot that we can do um, in terms of the Black Sea in particular, where the Russians have been wreaking havoc in terms of freedom of navigation. Um, and they kind of lost their mind when uh, a British ship went through just to reinforce through navigation. Um, so they respond to military force. This is how they have forced the U.S. to the negotiating table at the barrel of a gun, basically, by holding Ukraine hostage. And unfortunately, I think that is the only way they will see that we are serious. Uh, we already said that NATO will not engage in a military conflict in Ukraine. The United States will not send boots on the, on the ground, but that is a pretty extremist level. You know, there's a lot more we can do with weapons. The Ukrainians have requested a lot of very specific weapons. I mean, they requested Patriot missiles that would completely change the balance of power. But why not signal might be open to that? You know, if there was a legislative proposal in Congress, it doesn't have to be the administration itself saying we should open up sales, sales of Patriot systems to Ukraine. That would get the Russians' attention very quickly. There was a leaked article, uh, leaked information, I think it was an Ignatius piece some time ago, outlining uh, plans to move uh, U.S. equipment and NATO equipment from the region uh, directly to Ukraine versus moving it from the United States quickly. 
given the Russian response already that they think that diplomacy has hit a dead end, this is what they've been saying over the last day or two, we should do this now. Will we? I'm not sure, and I don't think so. Jeffrey, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, I, first, I want to express my appreciation for all these sophisticated and up to the minute uh, scary uh, predictions. Uh, oh my God. I have a, a, a long-term question. I've been told that at the time of the reunification of Germany, the United States and the European Union either informally or by treaty informed Russia that NATO would not expand to the east. And therefore Russia has a uh, diplomatic uh, tit for tat going saying, you violated your obligations and promises. And uh, the whole thing has unfolded from there. Can anybody tell me whether this is true or not? There's a lot of debate about this. Uh, and you have to remember, at the time that those negotiations were taking place in 1990, the Soviet Union still existed. So no one was, at all was thinking about Ukraine. Um, and uh, even the Warsaw Pact was still in existence in many ways. Um, so the conversations really were about reunification of well, the Warsaw Pact had just ended. But the, the, it was really in the context of reunification of Germany and whether NATO would expand to the east of Germany. And there were initial sort of offers from Secretary Baker to Gorbachev um, with that regard. Uh, and then he was pulled back uh, by the White House and, and the Germans, and that was later withdrawn. So how the Russian interpreted it at the time is debatable, and whether we, we really meant it is debatable. But I don't actually think it matters what we did or did not say 30 years ago. I think what matters is what Putin currently believes is a major threat to Russia, and I think he does have a red line on um, either Ukraine or Georgia or any of the other Soviet republic, minus the Baltics, joining NATO, and he's going to willing to fight for it. I mean, the fundamental issue with this crisis, I think, is that he cares more about Ukraine than we do. That gives him enormous leverage. And, and are you saying there that in criticism, like we should care more, or is it just an observation? It's, it's a total observation. I actually don't think that we should care about Ukraine more than he does. Um, Ukraine does not represent strategic American interests in a way that I think Taiwan, for example, does for us. But it's just the reality that we went over our skis in pushing for NATO membership in Ukraine. I think one of the fatal decisions in this whole saga has been the 2008 decision where the Americans strong-armed the Europeans, Germany and France, to have a declaration uh, within NATO that Ukraine will join NATO along with Georgia and that set us on this path that uh, I think is very hard to now forestall. I would just say that uh, we have to remember that with regards to diplomacy, there are negotiations and there are decisions and agreements. At one point during a conversation, it seems that uh, Secretary Baker raised this idea, but it was uh, something in the, in the course of a, a conversation that no decision was made on and uh, frankly, uh, facts to the, uh, to the contrary indicated that Russia bought into the unification of Germany and then eventually bought into this idea of NATO enlargement. Even in, in uh, 2000, uh, you, you still have Putin saying, I'm interested in joining NATO. I mean, he wouldn't have said that if, he, if, he was, if, if the Russians were completely closed off to this notion of NATO enlargement. Same thing uh, with regards to this, uh, the uh, NATO-Russia Founding Act signed in 1997. These, these doors were open. So what's clear, though, is that Russia violated numerous written agreements, states, uh, something that states are obligated to fulfill 
whether that's uh, the the Budapest Accords on on aggression towards Ukraine, Helsinki Acts, any number of different things, UN obligations. So all that is 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 clear. Whereas this hanging on to one conversation in the context of a discussion and no agreement that doesn't really carry much weight. Certainly, it doesn't in the diplomatic world. Harry, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Ben. I too want to commend the panel. It's been a very informative discussion. My question might be a very naive one since this is way outside my area of expertise, but do the Russians have enough military resources to invade Ukraine, take Kiev, then negotiate what they really want, which is Eastern Ukraine? I mean, uh, uh, Dmitry has already indicated to me through the, I guess you call it the Q&A, that it's very unlikely. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, are there, are there resources that he's put together on the border sufficient to accomplish this and thereby give himself some latitude to retreat. Because I agree with Dmitry, I don't see why it would be rational for Putin to want to go into Western Ukraine. All right, so I, I, suspect, I suspect all of you have thoughts on this. Dmitry, uh, go first. I'm sure Alex, uh, our, our military officer, has, has thoughts on Russian capacity. Ambassador Courtney and Alina, if you do too, uh, uh, feel free to jump in. So, so one, I don't think that he has the capacity to invade today. I think he still needs to complete mobilization, even if he just limits himself to the east, uh, stopping at the Dnepr River, which I think um, they would do. But uh, I don't see him going to Kiev. I don't see him going to Western Ukraine. Could Russia theoretically do it? Of course it can. It has one of the largest militaries in the world. Uh, but that would be a very uh, tough fight tough occupation and wouldn't uh, accomplish his objective of creating a buffer state that he wants on Russia's borders. So I think he would limit himself at the Dnepr River. I was just going to say, I mean, this all depends on whether they use an air campaign. I mean, in terms of what they've amassed, they're going to want to minimize body bags. Very unpopular in Russia to have uh, young Russian boys dying in, in, a, in Ukraine. Uh, so I think they've had the experience in Syria now that was very effective. Um, on an air campaign. And I think that will be the way to do this if they really want to take it to the next level. That would be a game changer, 100%. Uh, will they want to bomb the hell out of Ukraine? I don't think so, because at the end of the day, Russia can't sustain an occupation force. That they cannot do. They don't have the capacity to do. Uh, so I think the question is, you know, is this a ground offensive, a limited ground offensive uh, that still causes um, some pain to the Ukrainians? But they're going to take a lot more pain. You know, just as a side note, I have you know still friends and colleagues in Ukraine, and almost everyone I've talked to, a civilian, have been taking uh, sort of basically guerrilla military uh, training classes. So the population will fight in addition to the armed forces. Every single Ukrainian will fight. Uh, so I think the the Russians may be underestimating that, but it's it's going to be very very bloody for them. So I would say that there's zero chance that this occurs without an air campaign. I think what the Russians have assembled is a crushing force uh, and that they're continuing to build up. They're build, uh, bringing up reserve forces now from the Eastern Military District. Those probably are not going to be the frontline troops. Uh, military, the Eastern Military District is not considered kind of the, the, the top tier uh, district uh, also, but they're probably reserve forces. And the idea is to really crush the, the Ukrainian uh, military forces. How this is likely to unfold is aerial bombardments cruise missile strikes, uh, attacks on airports and seaports, 
to destroy uh, uh, command and control, destroy a huge amount of infrastructure. And I think they're going to go after morale targets. Think about um, Aleppo and Russian bombing of Aleppo. They're going to go after targets that are, that are going to crush the Ukrainian will to resist. So I could imagine like annihilating the Maidan, which is the site of the 2005 and 2014 uh, revolutions, going after palaces, going after political targets, as well as as command and control. The idea is that they don't need to really, frankly, occupy it. They just need Ukraine as a failed state. They could do that in a couple of different ways. They could do that by by destroying the Ukrainian military, really undermining the credibility of the Ukrainian government to resist Russia. They could do that through securing some additional territory and cities. Uh, I don't think they're going to go all the way up to the Dnieper River. I mean, it, it, that just requires a lot of force, uh, a lot of military force to seize and a lot of military force to hold. So I think, you know, there's different scenarios where they maybe pick up another city like Kharkiv, which was the capital of eastern Ukraine uh, in, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, they could go after Mariupol and do build this land bridge to uh, Crimea and use some of the logistics around that. But frankly, they're just going to do a, a, a huge amount of damage uh, and uh, they don't have to worry really about staying behind there. They'll let the West uh, maybe come in and pick up the pieces. Uh, as I listen to the description of the air campaign, it kind of reminds me of the Nazi attack on Poland. Uh, it's one thing for the uh, Russians to carpet bomb Aleppo, but to carpet bomb a European country, uh, I think that would be something that would you know, just have a tremendous impact in Europe and the West on Russia. And uh, I think a lot of Russians would be disillusioned at that point. 100% agree. Uh, the images of bombs dropping on Syria, the Russians were like, okay, whatever. Basically, great, we're of great power now. But the images of bombs dropping on uh, the historical roots of Russia, which is how Putin talks about Ukraine, that Ukraine is Russia because that's where ancient Rus started, that, that would not play. Those images of you know Slavs dying under Russian carpet bombs, uh, European palaces being bombed that look very similar to what you have in Russia. People have relatives in Ukraine, a lot of relatives in Ukraine. I just think this would be uh, a domestic disaster and I don't see it happening. I just want to point out that for the last seven years, 14,000 Slavs have already died in Donetsk and Luhansk. So they've already crossed that threshold a long time ago. Yes, but not, not with bombs dropping on you know, a version of St. Petersburg, which is what Kiev looks like. Yeah, there's just no chance that this is going to occur without an aerial campaign. They need it from the, for the command and control component. So the question is whether it's limited to military and political targets. I think it's going to be more than that. I think it's going to be crushing the, the Ukrainian will to resist. And the Russians don't care about, uh, you know, some of, the, some of these other secondary factors. All right, we're going to give Sam the last question today. So, so last question is, we've talked a lot about what we can do now, and we've talked about the potential scenarios of the Russian attack. What would you estimate the NATO and American response would be once that attack begins? Ambassador Courtney, what do you, what do you expect the response to be? Again, to refer to the Yom Kippur War, it will depend in part on the course of the fighting. We did not expect to take weapons out of our stocks to support Israel and Yom Kippur. But based on the fighting, we ended up doing that. I think a lot of uh, what NATO and the U.S. will do will, in fact, depend on the kind of uh, kind of attack. If this is a 
a land attack just to get a, a land bridge down to Crimea, that would be quite different than trying to go to the Dnipro uh, River. We are going to leave it there. Alina, Ambassador Courtney, Dimitri, Alex, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer is the intrepid Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, you could be part of the audience that's asking these questions. You could have your voice directing a question about Russia and Ukraine to Alina Polyakova or Ambassador William Courtney. But to do that, you need to be a material supporter of Lawfare, which means you need to go to patreon.com slash lawfare and sign up for Lawfare Live. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is, of course, performed by the one and only Sophia Gann. And as always, thanks for listening.